0: fighting for freedom every day republicans right now the conservatives which unfortunately this is what we have to do every time even after a vote where people are sick and tired of the establishment, they're sick and tired of the squeezy, middle-of-the-road, squishy kind of Republican rhinos, and we vote conservatives in, then we have to fight tooth and nail in D.C. to actually be heard within the Republican Party.
1: This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Hey, darn right, it is.
0: Welcome back into the program. It is the middle of the week, the midweek celebration, the post-post Monday, the pre-pre-Tuesday, or the pre-pre-Friday, however you want to look at it. It's a great day in America for sure. Welcome into a broadcasting Live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country radio, TV, live streaming, and podcasting. However, you may watch or listen to the program. What's up? Great to have you along for the ride today. We appreciate you very much. Your Millennial General reporting for duty. Back at it again yesterday. Many of our radio listeners, I know, I apologize, was not able to be present here yesterday. I'm not going to go into detail just let's just say i am not a fan of very large internet providers customer service i don't know if i should name them or not so we're just going to leave them at that but we had some major technical issues and we got them all fixed and ready to rock and roll again for today which means i'm pent up man we have two days worth of news in a one hour program that takes about five hours a day to cover with all the craziness going on in the world so we're going to do the best we can today to cover as much of it as we possibly can bottom of the hour we have dr chad savage he is the founder of your choice direct care as we talk about the healthcare industry we talk about is there really a difference between private and public options for health insurance today is there really is there really i mean you have the private option and i use that in air quotes but how heavily regulated is that industry from the federal government and is there really truly that option from the private sector so we'll talk about that coming up at the bottom of the hour we have a lot to get to today obviously the balloons are still a thing or the ufos or uaps or whatever they're calling them now uh we'll get to that in a second we have the ohio derailment of the train the media man not covering any of this which i find fascinating while outside media is making a big deal of it so uh we have that to cover today also the i find the most ironic hilarious piece of news that we have to cover today What's Trending Today shows that California has their mass exodus en route right now where they've lost more uh, near 700,000 people over the last two years with COVID-19. And if the trend continues with the exodus that's happening in the state of California, they predict, some expect, according to the report, that there could only be possibly 500,000 people left in the entire state of California in two years. Now, I want to reiterate that right now... I know, I know. I want to reiterate that right now the state of California is one of the most populated states in the entire nation. I mean, there's what? There's multi-millions of people in a single city. And you have Las Vegas, or not Las Vegas, you have Los Angeles, you have San Diego, you have um, what, what other big cities in California? I don't even know. You got those big cities, for for example. Multiples of millions of people in each one of those. A half a million people would be left in the entire state in two years if the trend continues. Now, while that's going on, California has not in any way, shape, or form changed any of their agenda or their politics or their policies or the direction that they're going. They don't care. They want to continue to ram down their progressive agenda as much as possible to the point where the Mildly progressive individuals are leaving the state and going to awesome states like Kansas and Texas and Oklahoma and the entire Mid-America region where they're corrupting our politics and turning that into a purple area and then leaving California to be the desert wasteland. So my theory is now we have two options. We can either stop the flow of individuals and keep them in California and say, hey, dummies, you actually voted for the policies in California or... We just let everything happen, and then we go over and take over California again and turning it into the wonderful state that it needs to be and that it potentially could be and that it used to be back in the day. I'm not quite sure which direction we need to go as of yet, but that is a theory that I think we need to ponder uh, over the next few days. Excuse me while I take a sip of water here in the studio. No food or drinking water, right? No food or drink in studio. Uh, this, uh, yesterday, having some crazy wild days, I was here extremely late, and my cold set in tenfold. So I am hyped up on so much medication right now that you could probably hook me up to an IV and be the prescribing uh, medication for you if, you if you have something. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have the day DayQuil right now, but uh, hopefully we don't lose the voice halfway through the program today. I want to get into the big issue that I think is going on outside of the UFOs, Outside of the uh, issue in Ohio, which we'll get to in a little bit, there's another big issue going on that we cannot lose focus on this week. And that is, of course, what's trending today. That is, of course, the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing the cases regarding the student loan forgiveness programs in the nation. There are a lot of individuals, a lot of people across the nation that are waiting on pins and needles on whether their student loans will be forgiven or whether they will resume payments again come July 1st of 2023. Because even myself, I have one student loan that is in limbo right now. The rest of the other two are private, so they don't really matter, which I just need to throw out there. Uh, To hell with you, private student loan companies. How dare you try and charge me a 13% interest rate on a $25,000 loan? That's a little insane right now. Yeah. Oh, I know. Trust me. I'm not very happy about it. My student loan payment every month is $350 for that student payment alone, and $70 goes towards the principal. How the hell am I supposed to pay off a $25,000 student loan when $70 a month goes towards the interest, the other $250 whatever goes into the interest payments on it? I'm just throwing that out there. So that's my little bitch session. I feel much better now. I can be Zen again. Thank you. All right so let's get into the fact that the u.s supreme court is looking at student loan forgiveness at the federal level which was an executive order signed by the biden administration republicans have signed a letter sending to the u.s supreme court right now asking them to repeal this because they call it to be unconstitutional now as wild as that may seem i know as wild as that may seem what a wild concept, the fact that the, the Biden administration can't just, with the sign of a pen, actually just write off near $305 billion of federal government pledges. And while they say, hey, I know you have a contract with the government for signing and paying back these loans, you, you don't have the right as an executive branch to consume $305 billion of our federal budget because that needs to be approved by Congress. Now, the argument from the Biden administration is the HEROES Act that was passed back in what 2001, 2003, that gave the Department of Education the ability to uh, write off certain loans because of uh, emergencies, largely because of 9-11 and individuals that were in New York that uh, were part of that, where they were able to just freeze them or completely write them off during times of emergency. The problem is, is that right now in the nation, we're no longer in a pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic is over. Biden admitted that the pandemic is over. And most agencies at the federal government has al- have also admitted that the pandemic is over. Now, what should have happened with this issue, with the U.S. Supreme Court and the student loan forgiveness, because I know, look, I have student loans. Most people that listen to this program have student loans. Our ratings are really well with a little bit younger demographic, obviously being a millennial myself. uh, But even older individuals that are in there, and I don't use the old in a derogatory sense in any way, shape or form, 40s, 50s, 60s, you're still paying on student loans possibly as well. Oh, how times have changed when it comes to... The fact that you can afford to go to college just by working a little bit, saving up some money and going to college as opposed to, well, don't worry, we'll just sign up for a student loan and then spend the rest of your life paying it off because even when you file bankruptcy, it doesn't go away. Now, imagine that this this loan is so detrimental and so important that even if you file a bankruptcy, whether it's a medical bankruptcy, whether it's a a uh, just a personal bankruptcy for your business or your credit cards or for your home or for your car loan or whatever it is, that that payment does not go away. That's how important it is. But yet the Biden administration wants to just write it off and poof, make it disappear. Now, what should have happened at the very beginning is the U.S. Supreme Court should have come back with, you know, the whole separation of powers thing. They should have come back and said, hey, uh, at the beginning, before you even sign this, you don't have the right to do so because we need to examine this issue and look at it to see whether you're even allowed to do this or not. The Supreme Court did not do that. So now it has to be presented through a court case. Unfortunately, the court case that's presented cannot just be, is this constitutional or not constitutional? That's really what hinders here and what uh, what will happen depending on the decision of the Supreme Court. But that's not how the court cases actually happen. An individual or a state has to sue the federal government so, for certain losses or a bridge of contract or something that makes it legally invalid. And then once the Supreme Court says, yeah, this, this contract, quote unquote, is invalid, then it will fall and then it will topple over. Not because of the constitutionality portion although that will be a byproduct of the decision making one way or the other but it's because of a contractual issue here's what i mean there's a blog called scotusblog.com where you can see a lot of the cases going on with the u.s supreme court right now and it's really a non uh, a non-partisan it just kind of gives the information right now where according to there are two court cases right now in the supreme court regarding the federal student loan program the forgiveness program one of them's coming from the state of missouri now again I reiterate, it's not challenging the constitutionality of whether the executive branch has the authority to do this or not. There are Republican legislators in Washington, D.C. that have signed on a letter to piggyback on the case advocating for the unconstitutionality of it, but they don't even really mention that term as well. The case really comes from the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, or MOHILA. Let's go ahead and call it that, the Missouri Higher Education Loan loan authority where they're one of the largest holders and services of student loans in the entire united states their claim in the supreme court case challenging the student loan forgiveness program is that they could be losing as much as 44 million dollars a year if this goes into effect because of the student loans that will just be wiped out because they're the ones that really hold the debt even for the federal government and without people paying on this They could be losing money. Therefore, the government doesn't have the right to do it. Not because the executive branch doesn't have the authority to sign on the dotted line to make it happen, but because the private sector could potentially be losing money. That's the the court case that's coming up here. The crazy part is that the Biden administration has responded to that and said so the administration suggests the agency might also respond to the reduction in revenue by cutting other expenses. Hey, you know what? If you're going to be losing money here, just cut some expenses. Not a big deal. That's the response that the federal government has had in the court case of, well, just cut spend, uh, cut expenses because of the reduction of revenue. Not that big of a deal. Four states across the nation, including really here in the Mid-America region, Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, I hail here, and South Carolina, also say in this lawsuit, picking back on it and signing on with this, saying that they will lose tax revenue in the state when this happens. Now, I'm not quite sure how they're going to be losing tax revenue, because uh, if... We don't get to write off that on our taxes. That means we show a higher income rate, which means we're going to be paying more in state taxes across uh, for wherever state you're in. So I'm not sure how you're going to be losing money if that just poof goes away. You don't have to file in when you file your taxes, which taxes are coming up in a couple of months, right? And theoretically, depending on how much you pay in interest on these taxes or on these student loans, then that's deducted from your base income that you file for for the state and the federal government. And if you're not filing on it anymore because it's not there anymore, then you would theoretically have a higher income that you're filing on, which means you'd be paying more taxes at the federal and at the state level. So the whole, by the way, the whole idea that the government's going to be losing massive amounts of money from this is a bunch of BS as well. Because, again, you have a higher rate of revenue that you file on that you're not deducting money from from paying on interest, which, by the way, they cap as well, which is a bunch of crap. When you have a massive amount of student loan payments that you're making and they cap it with one student loan, the amount of interest that you pay on an annual basis, you're like, oh, you can't write off anymore. The letter from the Republican legislators as well is written, not in the sense of whether it's constitutional or not, but says that it permits the modest measures to prevent certain individuals from losing ground on their loans due to hardships reduced by war and national emergency with the HEROES Act, saying that, oh, the federal government... We'll be losing money as well, because we won't have those interest payments be com- coming in with those monthly payments on the student loans.
1: The voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier. Darn
0: right, it is. Welcome back in 24 minutes past the hour, radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting. Welcome into the program. Rocking it here for another day. Student loan forgiveness. Most individuals, most people would say, wait a second, that's really stupid. You took out the student loan, go ahead and pay it back. And look, I mean, yeah, my budget every month is strapped because of the amount of student loan payments that I make. That's just a matter of fact. So what do I do? I don't go to the government and say, hey, I need you to forgive my student loan. I say, hey, I need to find revenue enough in order to compensate for those bills because I need to pay my bills and pay them back. And while it may take a while, I by golly, I'm going to make it happen and we're going to do it. But these individuals, I don't know where this idea came from other than Joe Biden looking to try and win re-election, which I think is what happened uh, with the uh, uh, with a lot of these races across the nation was making promises to the younger generation and i think it worked at trying to win over much of the millennials and those that have massive amounts of student loan debt because that's what they were hoping for now they're angry and they're looking at again welcome to the pr uh from the republican party with the lack of understanding of what's going on here now we have this being held up in court and they're being deferred again which again the government's like look at how much money we've lost because of the fact that they've been deferred for the last two years with the COVID-19 pandemic, they're on hold, they're being frozen, and either they will just drop off completely or they return in July of this year. So we have a few more months before those take effect again, where you could have ten to $20,000 of your student loans just forgiven and wiped off. Um, while that's a stupid idea in the first place, they're using the argument that the HEROES Act of 2003 gives the Department of Education and other, uh, uh, other agencies authority to declare an emergency when and be able to freeze certain payments. And they say the U.S. Department of Education is uh, authorized to do this because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we've frozen and we've ended the COVID-19 pandemic and said it's no longer. It's no longer. But they don't apparently agree with that. So they want it to be done, but it's not really being done. So now the Supreme Court's hearing this when they should have stopped it in the very first place and said, no, you're not allowed to do this. We need to review this beforehand uh, with an executive order. But they did not. So now we have to argue a non-constitutional argument in order to try and stop something that's not constitutional. How screwed up is that process, man? We should be able to say here. Here's the challenge. It's unconstitutional. Look and see whether government, the executive branch, has the authority to do something like this. And the Supreme Court should look at it and be like, yeah, you know what? I, really, there's no place in the Constitution where it says that you have the right to just sign off on $309, 305000000000 billion over the next decade, $30 billion a year for the next decade, where all of a sudden yeah, you guys have that authority. You don't. And while we're looking at, I don't know, the debt ceiling that's being frozen right now because we're bickering on whether we should uh, freeze the government and shut it down or raise the debt ceiling um, to whatever they want it to be, or just indefinitely, which is what Democrats really want. We're looking at that because we're out of money. They want to sign on this other $305 billion of additional spending. And they say that we're losing money every day that it's frozen. Obviously, because the money that we're making, the payments that we're making to the federal government aren't coming in. Therefore, the interest that they're making as a profit and revenue off of this, they're not making right now. So why would re-erasing it completely actually save us any money? That doesn't make any sense for one. Number two, you can realize that the only thing that matters for both the private sector right now and the federal government is not the constitutionality, but it's actually about the money. It's all about the money. The government only cares about what's the cheapest way to make this happen. The private sector and the states are saying that we're losing tax revenue because of this plan, and it's all about the money. They don't care about where the Constitution falls in place of this. But even when they try to talk about the money, it doesn't make any sense because if you get to write off your uh, your taxes and the interest that you make on student loans on your taxes, and then all of a sudden you're not, you're losing that revenue, but then you are making more based on the higher income that individuals have, which means you get to tax them more for their personal income. That's a bunch of crap anyways too, but it is what it is with the system that we have right now supreme court's hearing it we'll see what's in store for us over the next couple of weeks maybe we can have some common sense come out of this one the fact that we have a relatively conservative u.s supreme court is optimistic right now but we'll have to see dr chad savage right around the corner to talk about the healthcare industry as well with this stay with andy
1: here andy hoosier Reason meets radio. This is the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier. Right, it is. Welcome back into the program. Already
0: halfway through the program. It goes by way too fast, man. So fast. Radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting. Trying to cram that 10 pounds of reason into that 5 pound bag. Trying to rebrand the millennial generation one radio listener at a time. Multiple radio stations all over the place as well. So thanks for hanging out however you do that each and every day. As we move through a midweek celebration, we'll get back to the student loan thing. You know, what's fascinating about it, and this goes right into the topic that we're about to cover here as well. I'll never forget this. You remember during the Trump administration when the government, the Democrats, were interviewing the different heads of the different agencies and departments? And when it came to Betsy DeVos to run the education department, they weren't asking about your qualifications on education, And if she knew education, what she would do with the education curriculum or common core or critical race theory, which that wasn't really talked about much at that time anyways, but they weren't talking about the quality of education and the curriculum at the time. What were they talking about? They were talking about money and hey, you were a business owner, Betsy DeVos, but you didn't handle a multi trillion dollar bank account like we have here, a multi billion dollar bank account like we do here with the Department of Education. How are you? How do you know how to properly handle those kinds of funds at the federal level are you really qualified to handle that amount of money hence they don't care about the actual education they don't care about that. It's about the money. So this whole student loan forgiveness program with the, uh, the, the going into the Supreme Court and being heard is not about whether it's constitutional or not. It's about what way the federal government can make the most amount of money and, oh, by the way, get further into debt because Donald, uh, Joe Biden has apparently been able to cut $2 trillion out of our deficit, which is just that's hilarious. Is that is that true? Did that actually happen? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. With that being said, let's shift gears a little bit because...
1: What's trending today?
0: The next money-making scheme has come from not just the education industry as well, but the healthcare industry, as you know. After the signing of Obamacare, we saw near a sixth of the U.S. economy go into the hands of the federal government with the if you can keep your doctor, if you want to keep your doctor, you can, if you want to keep your provider, you can, and that didn't quite fare out. And with the faith in the healthcare industry dropping and dwindling each and every year because of the high cost of premiums and deductibles and the way things are with the insurance companies, the questions are, Do you really have an option between public and private insurance? Do you really? Because you have the public option, which is the Obamacare option, but then you have the quote unquote, and I use air quotes for my radio listeners, the private option. But the private options are so regularly, uh, so heavily regulated through the federal government and so in bed with the federal government is there really a difference? To talk about some of this, Ian, more excited to have on the program, he's the founder of Your Choice Direct Care, which you can find online at yourchoicedirectcare.com. Excited to have on here Dr. Chad Savage. Chad, how are you, my friend?
2: Hey, good, Andy. Good to, good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm You were know, hitting an interesting point there with Betsy, Betsy DeVos and... You know, saying, well, you have never managed these kind of funds. Well, the education department is tiny compared to the health department. We're talking in the United States, we we spend $4.5 trillion with a T every single year. And you know who's got experience managing most kind of that sum of money? No one. No, no one. one No one manages that. And the closest thing you could get if the government could make that claim that they manage that is someone who's incredibly mismanaging it. So so poor Betsy DeVos, you know, to being thrown under the bus like that when. not. These people are certainly bad examples if they're the, the uh, you know bar to which we're to be held.
0: Yeah, well, it's unfortunate. I mean, we can't even fathom a trillion, multiple trillions of dollars, and yet that's what the healthcare industry is. And uh, yeah. for some reason, they want to continue to expand Medicaid in different states. They want to continue to absorb and expand the Obamacare and Medicaid programs all over the country. And they think that somehow that's going to solve the issue that I see has been drastically worsened since the signing of Obamacare.
2: No, amen to that. And one of the reasons a lot of people don't make the connection is because of gradualism. The people who wrote Obamacare were very smart in the sense that they didn't immediately implement all of its measures because it would have hit hard. Everybody would have seen the attribution. They would have said, oh, my gosh, Obamacare kicked in and look what happened. So instead, it was designed to gradually kick in over time and literally over a decade. And and many people are recognizing now these colossal wait times for care. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm up in Michigan. You're down in Kansas. But it's it's three months or more to get a colonoscopy, for example, even when it's badly needed. And people attribute that fully to the pandemic, and no doubt that's definitely exacerbated things. But this was very significantly increasing during the 2010s. Um, and that was because of Obamacare, putting too many people into the system, not increasing the provider base very much, and taking those providers and distracting them on unnecessary bureaucracy, which made them much less efficient
0: that's fascinating you say that there's such a long wait time because from what we hear on some of the national news is that they're encouraging and i remember our even candace department of health and environment encouraging people to go to your checkups go to get your colonoscopy go do the stuff because people were scared of the hospital quote unquote because of the pandemic and covid and therefore there was an opening and that there was no wait times because everything was running so well since no one was actually going Mm -hmm. to the doctor anymore that's what they were telling us and you're saying that's not true
2: well, at least they were initially trying to get people to come back in because it went from uh, there was increasing wait times to everything came to a screeching halt at the start mm-hmm. of the pandemic because they basically said anything that was elective could not be done. And there's a great misperception between elective uh, uh, being as though it's not needed and actually elective being needed, just not needing to be in the hospital. So it, the sad truth is, and I know this is not the topic for today, but I know that that policy killed some patients. In fact, I have one specifically of one of my own patients who could not get an absolutely needed procedure, who had to wait until it was so catastrophic that they had to be admitted to the hospital before it would be done, and she subsequently succumbed to that. Uh, and so that was itself just an like absolutely catastrophic uh, uh, measure. Uh, but yeah, so, so uh, you know, it was getting worse. It's getting much worse now, and we had warned in the 2000s that listen, Canada has six-month wait times. There's something called time rationing. You're not you're not rationing based on ability to pay or or, or or need. It's whoever will wait the longest for a service gets to get it, and that's exactly what we're doing here in the United States now. Instead, as Canada is now recognizing the folly of their ways, as is Britain, both of those systems are collapsing right now. We, instead of learning from their their example, are in, unfortunately attempting to replicate it.
0: Yeah, that is unfortunate. They're starting to see the error of the ways. The big question is now is I'm, I'm always the eternal optimist. I always like to see the fact that the private sector mm-hmm. for what is left of the private sector in the free market society is that we find all uh, solutions for the problems that we have. And when the premiums are doubled and tripled, but yet they're covering less, including pharmaceuticals, including different tests that we need, when deductibles are higher to where essentially it's not even worth having insurance in many aspects any longer, what are the options? What are people doing? We've heard about different membership times of of uh, family care physicians, just paying a monthly membership. We've heard about kind of the collective of you know the uh, the Christian Care Ministries being able to pay into kind of a pool thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the options out there, and what are people starting to uh, kind of go towards? And will that be the future of the healthcare industry?
2: I sure do hope for it and, and that's like you said, there's the optimism aspect. People always say, Are you optimistic for the future or pessimistic? Well it depends on which direction we take. We could go down the field approach that we talked about in Canada and, and the UK, or we can go to the, the American system, the true American system in every other industry, which is free market. And and that you know, people they say we're gonna make things more affordable and when they talk about that, usually through government, they mean by subsidy, but that's not making it more affordable. That's obscuring the cost, bearing it in taxation and premiums. But there is actually a system out there that is making things more affordable. And I'm happy to say Kansas is actually one of the hotbeds of this. Um, I don't know how far you are from Wichita, but one of my friends, uh, Dr. Josh Umber, Mm -hmm. uh, was one of the pioneers of this model that I'm currently a part of called direct primary care. And basically what it is, it's a free market governmental insurance free practice that functions in the membership model, and and I can't speak every practice a little different, but mine is between $49 and $89 a month. People see us as much as they want. They, we don't, pay co- they don't pay co-pays or anything like that. We, uh, we get them in for 30-minute and one-hour visits, and we can even dispense medication at cost, which just as an example, this is when we talk about fixing the price. This is not, again, subsidized. Unsubsidized, I can treat hypertension with a medication called amylodipine dispensed from my practice. One of the leading causes of premature preventable death for an entire month for under $0.25, which means we can treat hypertension for less than the cost of a single gumball. Wow.
0: It's amazing, yeah, and we're, and we're that's where right where we're from. It's Wichita here, and we, that, we've seen a couple of the different offices like that pop up around here with this direct primary care, just a paid membership. It seems so much easier. It gets rid of, like you said, the, the, you hit it right on with the subsidies and these high prices. If we're going to lower the cost of it, they're not lowering the cost. They're just making taxpayer money cover the majority of it so it doesn't come out of your direct payment when you actually make that payment, but it's not solving the actual issue. You guys have been able to figure out this system to be able to give it at an actual reasonable cost to where people can actually go and get the, de- the medications or the tests or whatever they need and not break the bank or file for bankruptcy because of it.
2: Yeah. And you clearly have a wonderful understanding of our industry because you alluded to the Christian health sharing ministries as well. And, you know, you always need a cover coverage for the unexpected, the, you know, an apodectomy or something like that. Direct primary care is absolutely mar- marvelous. We can, we can manage about 80% of medical problems, but there's still that small fraction of, of the medical need that is beyond the outpatient primary clinic and that's where you do need coverage. Yeah. So the question is, you know, how do you get affordable coverage? Well, the ACA products I think have greatly failed in that in the United States today, an average family four pays about $26,000 a year for premium costs. That's what they pay for the insurance before they ever even saw a doctor. Well, thankfully, there are alternatives to that out there, and the health-sharing ministries—I'm actually part of one—called Samaritan uh, is a great example of that. It it covers the unexpected without the normal uh, bureaucratic processes of the insurance company, thus massively reducing the cost. And a couple years ago, I wrote an op-ed in Town Hall, which is the news website, about my own experience when I switched to direct primary care, because I left a hospital system. So I was just like anybody else. I had to go out in the market and find coverage, and I was just aghast when I saw the premium costs. So I combine direct primary care, what I do, the the unlimited primary care, with the much more cost-effective care uh, of health sharing. And over a five-year period of time in savings over the premium cost of the insurance alone, my family saved $88,000 not in deprivation or rationing of care, of just changing how we pay for it. And if you take that and extend that over a decade, that's enough to buy a modest house in the savings on health care.
0: That's amazing. I love it, Chad. we got to take a hard break here. I love this conversation. Can you stick over one more segment with us? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I want to continue this conversation when we come back because this is, I think, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful this is going to be the future of the healthcare industry to where we can minimize the use of these insurance companies, taking away their power and ability to be as they are today and the dominance in the market. We'll do some more of that with Dr. Chad Savage right around the corner here on a Wednesday of The Voice of Reason. This
1: is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. All oh, Reason, Common Sense, Rationale. Welcome back into
0: the program. Last few minutes, boy, it flies right on by. Again, we need more than just an hour on this program. We got so much to talk about tomorrow. Just as a head, heads up, we are going to get to the Ohio train derailment because there's a lot of news coming out of that one and yet the mainstream doesn't want to talk about it i find that kind of fascinating plus we have obviously nikki haley that's jumped into the presidential race a little early to talk about presidential candidates but nonetheless that could be a shake-up with the republican primaries and of course the conspiracy and i use that in air quotes regarding the 15 minute cities what does that mean as many of the urban developers are denying that claim. So we'll get to all that tomorrow and a heck of a lot more. Right now, we're talking about what I find fascinating is the, as we mentioned, the options of the freedom of the private market. In education, like we talked about earlier, we have the fighting back against the public education system and the departments of education at the federal and statewide levels where we're talking about health or uh, uh, education savings accounts to be able to take it to charter or private or magnet schools having choice. What a concept. Freedom of choice to choose what the best option is for your children also the idea of of uh the micro schooling if anybody's heard of that concept of having just parents within like 10 you know couple blocks 10 12 kids doing micro schooling and the parents teaching them stuff outside kind of like a homeschool private thing but yet the parents just doing it in their backyards with the community and the block kids, which is fascinating. During the debate of healthcare when the Trump administration was in, what did Trump say the entire time? That he just wanted choice, have the insurance companies be able to compete across state lines and have options and competition in the market that would lower the prices again, would raise the quality again, that would lower the price and actually allow you to have choice to choose what the best options are for you. To talk about some more of that, we're hanging out here with Dr. Chad Savage. You can find him online at yourchoicedirectcare.com. With the direct care providers, the big new, I think, is going to be the future of the healthcare industry to where this uh, industry continues to expand, where you can get your family physician, your primary direct care provider, to take care of you with a monthly membership charge instead of having to go through your insurance day in and day out. I, Chad, again, I'm optimistic that this is going to be the future of the healthcare industry, isn't it?
2: You know, it's sure growing. I mean, when I started about eight years ago, there were several dozen of us in the, in the United States, and now there's over two two thousand. And I keep re- uh, referencing your home your hometown boy there in uh, Atlas, MD, Josh Umber, but he says something I think is quite insightful. He says, "You know, we we're actually growing at a rate faster than Starbucks." Wow. You know, so so sure, two thousand practices in the grand scheme of American healthcare doesn't sound that big, but when you consider that eight years ago with several dozen, it's 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 rapidly growing you know we were talking a little bit about too about the cost and and one thing that a lot of people don't understand is is that free markets are responsible for containment of that cost because they have a built in uh, feedback system. If your costs get too high, you're going to go out of business because people won't be willing to pay for it. Exactly. And a lot of people think of free markets as as kind of this grand thing for entrepreneurs. But in fact, it's a vicious bedfellow. It, it does not suffer fools. If If you misprice your system, if you have a lot of waste in your system, you will go out of business. And that's why this kind of system within healthcare can fix it. Because the waste is astronomical. If people control their own dollars, they will not accept that level of waste. They're not going to pay for bureaucracy. They're going to pay for care.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You hit it right on here, which really brings in the question that we asked at the very beginning was, is there really a difference between the private and public uh, options? And I use that in air quotes again right now with the healthcare industry, because even if with a private industry and they're capping things, Joe Biden capping pharmaceutical uh, prices or whatever, and then being subsidized, then you're paying less out of pocket at the time, but your taxpayer money still paying for it, and it seems like the insurance company doesn't have to cut back on any of their expenses because they're still getting as much money as what they were before, aren't they?
2: Yeah, the best way to perpetuate a falsely priced system is to obscure it and subsidize it. Again, that's exactly what we're doing. So what you need to fix that is transparency and agency, transparency, knowing what the costs are. And that's exactly what we do in direct primary care and just the cash pay market of of medical care itself. And then uh, agency, the ability to do something about it. The best agency you can ever have is to retain control of your own dollars. That's why making the coverage products more affordable is so vital because they found in the United States the average person doesn't have $400 to cover an unexpected medical expense. Well, that's because you're spending $26,000 on the insurance product. You get that down with the health sharing ministry to around $6,000 a year for a family. And, and suddenly you have much, much more money from which to actually get the care that you desire for yourself.
0: What a concept. $26,000 you pay in the uh, premiums for the insurance. And then in the insurance says, oh, by the way, that's a non-necessary uh, it's a pharmacy pill or a, a, some type of test. So therefore, we're not going to cover that. So you still need to pay for that out of pocket at the same time as well. It's it's unbelievable how the system's set up right now. We're out of time, my friend. It's Dr. Chad Savage. Yourchoicedirectcare.com. Go and check out the website. Chad, it's so good to have you on the program, my friend. we got to talk some more about this here Eric- on the program soon pleasure andy have a good one you as well good stuff right there we'll to- talk some more about that tomorrow until then though it's time for you to be your own voice of reason it's time for you to be that catalyst to change in your own community it's time for you to speak up speak out speak loud speak proud speak the truth and always speak some reason common sense truth and rationale i know it's hard to find today but let's be that
2: beacon of light this is the voice of reason i'm andy hoosier we'll see you on the radio